Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network Live. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the first strapless EKG-accurate heart rate monitor sports watches, and Vitargo, the energy replacement and recovery drink of intelligent endurance athletes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Getting ready to do your first 5K, 10K, marathon, triathlon, Spartan race? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm here with Joe Frail. He's the co-founder of Training Peaks. Of course, you have written all the Bibles. (laughs) The Cycling Bible, the Triathlete Bible, the Mountain Biker Bible. Uh, You know, it's it's biblical. (laughs) Say hello to the audience, Joe. Well, hi Richard, and uh, I'm, I'm interested. I appreciate your uh, you having me on today. Well, um, yeah, the book the books I've written haven't been kind of biblical sounding, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, just the way I look at the world, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to get some flack from somebody for saying what I said, but whatever. <laughs> but so the 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 book we're going to talk about that you just released, I, I'm assuming this is is available for sale already, right? Yeah, it came out actually last. It came out in uh, December. Okay, cool. So the the title of this book is "Fast After 50: How to Race Strong for the Rest of Your Life." Now, needless to say, being um, above 50, this this is definitely a book that uh, resonates very well with me. And I have to tell you, Joe, when I started reading it, like the first this this is the perfect way to to write a book because First you you depress me, <laughs> and then you bring okay. me then you bring me back up again, right? So so we're going to talk about all the terrible things that happen when you start to get old, and the proof behind it, scientific evidence that indicates that all these things are going to happen whether you like it or not, and then there's hope. So uh, let's right. can, let's start this by uh, you know why don't you give us you know the broad stroke of why I mean I kind of know because we talked about it last time we talked. But uh, let's let the audience know what led you to write this book. Sure. Yeah, it was the, uh, it was the summer of, uh, of uh, what, 20, 2012. And I was um, anticipating my 70th birthday at the end of the year. I'm sorry, summer of 2013. I was anticipating my birthday in December. And uh, I'd been thinking about the next birthday for quite a long time because that was 70. Um, somehow, 70 got my attention. 50 never did. 60 never never really got my attention either. But 70 got my attention because back in the in the late 90s, I'd written a book called Cycling Past 50. And at the time, I did all the research, most of, all the research I could find on the subject of older athletes. It wasn't much then, research that is. And... Uh, what I found was that the only thing I found that was really interesting was that as you get north of 70, uh, performance began to decline at a more rapid rate than it did south of 70. So this birthday coming up had my, got my attention. And so I decided to give myself a birthday present early that summer. And 
decided I was going to read all the research I could find on the subject and just to see what had come out since I'd read last read on that topic back in the late 1960s, 1990s. And um, so there's, there's a tremendous amount of research that came out in that amount of in, in those uh, intervening years. So I started reading it, and basically for the next eight months, I read at least one research study every day for eight months. Um, and I still didn't read all of it, but I read the most pertinent stuff. And uh, I began to write my blog uh, on my blog about what I was discovering. And I got such great responses from my readers, especially the older readers, that I decided a book must be necessary for this. There really wasn't anything out there that did what I was doing, which was discuss training from a, for aging athletes from a scientific perspective. And so that's how the book came to be. Oh, cool. Okay, so... Uh... Um, the 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 relevance of the research of late compared to what you were reading in the 90s, did you notice much change in the trends in respect to what we thought was going to happen to us and what's actually happening to us? Um, not really, because there was so little information available back then that there, it was hard to see any trends. Uh, there were comments about things in some of the research, you know, the more recent, basically what happens in this kind of research is, at the end, the um, the scientists say something like, "More research is necessary in this on this topic uh, because there just wasn't enough out around." So there really wasn't much to to hang your hat on. And so what I've been reading here in the summer of 2013, in fact, the rest of the year of 2013 and into 2014, was basically stuff that was uh, really new. You know, it had only been around for by that time roughly about 10 years. So. Uh, uh, no, really no trends earlier than just because there wasn't much research to, to show trends. Okay, so the good news is, uh, and I guess that's kind of what resonates throughout the book, is that if we stay active, if we if we try to keep exercising, and um, you know, just just not just get out there and go for a walk, but you know, get some vigorous exercise, things are going to be a lot more promising for us. And I'm, I'm looking at this uh, chapter in the very beginning of the book where. They do this comparison uh, of mice and men, and right. where they where in the book you you show um, this study they did on these mice, where uh, I guess the one mice was put on a pretty serious regimen of running of about fifty minutes or so, um, um, three times yeah three times a week yeah, and right. then, and then um, compared it, and apparently apparently you know. Relative to the lifespan of a a, a mouse compared to us, um, it looks like a, a mouse being about eight months old would be roughly sixty years old in humans, right? Right, that's right. So what what was interesting about this that I thought is you have a picture of both of these mice, one that was sedentary and one that was exercising, and there's a a, a real noticeable difference in the appearance uh, of the you know the aging of the of the two. Uh, or one sure. being, you know, the one that was sedentary is, is far, looks far older than the one that was, you know, um, you know, getting the exercise. Uh, completely yeah. different. So uh, I, I can almost draw some parallels between friends. <laughs> you know, those yeah. that, you know, and, and given that yesterday was Super Bowl, you know, I, I met with some folks and we had a little fun, and and uh, there was a couple guys there. It, it was kind of interesting, you know, because. A couple of the guy. Actually, I was the oldest guy in the room, which I hate to hate to always be. But uh, so here comes a guy, and he's making his way to the front door, and he's hobbling. You know, his knees jacked up. 
And he told me that he's, yeah, he goes, yeah, I had a cortisone shot in my knee. And uh, so, you know, I'm on Vicodin for the pain. And then I had to take something to settle my stomach. And now my stomach's irritated. And I need to go sit down for a little bit. I mean, the guy was going through all, I mean, I'm thinking, the guy is 10 years younger than me. And he and his yeah. knee his knee issue is not because he'd been running on it or riding his bike. He's just pretty much one of those guys who's a desk jockey and and falling apart, you know. And um, what was interesting is the day before that, uh, not to go on this rant, but just compare. I'm comparing mice here. Uh, a day before that, we uh, a group of us went into uh, the the Santa Monica Mountains to do a little bit of hill work and uh, on foot. And there, uh, there's a, a paved road that drops you into the canyon uh, where we go, which is about a mile long, and it's it's pretty steep. And uh, one of my clients that was with me picked up this great big rock and decided to carry the rock up the hill. Well, you know, of course, I couldn't be outdone by that, so I had to find a bigger rock. And we, we both made our way out of the canyon with these big boulders on our shoulder. And, okay. and we, so it was a Kodak moment. Somebody took a picture. And, and so that was the topic of discussion pre-Super Bowl was uh, us going out of the canyon with these boulders on our shoulders while this guy was hobbling around with a knee that really didn't face any activity. Uh, so yeah. I guess there goes the, the proof in the pudding, right? If we stay busy, uh, we're going to stay upright a little bit longer. Yeah, the fellow that uh, limped up to the door with a bad knee, um, I, I really don't know what the situation was, obviously, but Jack LaLanne had a, remember him? Yeah. Jack LaLanne, had, he had an interesting uh, comment about that sort of thing. He says it's much better to, to wear out than to rust out. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know, again, don't know what the fellow was to cause his knee problem, but for yeah. many people, when they get into the past age 50 that don't exercise, they're basically rusting out. They're not wearing out. Right. Well, uh, that's that's a really interesting point. By the way, I've met Jack LaLanne. Uh, he he's a, he's a char- was a character, I should say. Yes. And, and if you bump into him, if you've ever met him, uh, I guarantee you within inside of five minutes of having talked to him, he's going to be on the ground doing push-ups on his fingertips. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that's what he would do. He, he Hi, my name's Jack, and he'd be on the ground and popping out these fingertip push-ups, one-arm push-ups, just so you could do it. And uh, I don't know how old he was back then, but... Uh, it wasn't too much longer after he pulled that barge with his teeth from right. uh, Alcatraz, uh, handcuffed. So, so anyway. But anyway, yeah. so getting back to your book, um, I, I thought I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, we're we're taking a step in the direction of how how to care for ourselves and how to approach our training. Because I think, and obviously you know, but I think that the trend for people when they get older is they shy away from high-intensity exercise because they assume that they need to do things that are more gentle on their body, and then they opt for you know low-intensity cardiovascular exercise and little to any strength training. So uh, your book is basically the polar opposite of that. So can you kind of go off on this this uh, a rant about you know the need for this intensity and what the importance of it is? Sure. Yeah, what the research says is that there are three reasons that we we slow down. Um, in fact, it's it was overwhelming how much how much research basically said the same thing. 
two of those reasons have to do with how one trains. Uh, two reasons are decrease in uh, aerobic capacity, which is also called VO2 max, and the decline in muscle mass as we get older. And um, both of these things are related to essentially how vigorously one exercises. Um, the tendency as we get older, you're exactly right, the tendency is that we tend to move toward uh, long, slow distance. Uh, we tend to make everything easy, and uh, we become very concerned about how long the workout is and how many miles we do in a week as opposed to how intensely we may have trained at any time during the week. And the research basically tells us it's just the opposite. As you get older, the concern has to be how intense your exercise is. In fact, the book goes through several research studies which show that without a doubt. The longitudinal studies, which are the gold standard, one case, the study was uh, 20 years old. For 20 years, they studied the same, the same athletes from the time they were younger athletes until they were well beyond age 50. And they found that those who kept on doing high-intensity training intervals and races and so forth continued to keep their VO2 max at a very high level uh, or, or almost no decline at all, less than a half a percent per year. Whereas the athletes who went to long, slow distance lost more than 1% per year of, of aerobic capacity. And uh, those who stopped exercising altogether lost about 1.5% per year of aerobic capacity. So it, it, it became clear as I read the research that intensity really is the key to this. The problem for most athletes is that they're very concerned about two things. Number one, and the biggest thing, is injury, especially runners. Um, they've been injured a number of times. In fact, you become more likely to be injured the older you get. And so consequently, they shy away from doing anything that's high intensity because it puts more stress on joints and muscles, tendons, and so forth. And um, But the problem is, I think, not so much the high intensity, but rather greed. Um, athletes, when they decide to get in better shape, decide to do it overnight. And so they, they bite, bite off more than they can actually manage. Uh, in the book, I talk about dose and density. The dose is how big is the workout. If you get injured, it's because either the, the dose was too big, you tried to make the workout too hard, or number two, the density of the workout was too was too great. Density means how close together the hard workouts are. Right. And so that becomes the, the key to avoiding injury and overtraining is to get the dose and density right. And so I give examples of how to get that right from the starting position. If you've not been doing intervals for a long time, if you've not been doing high-intensity training, if you've not been doing weightlifting with high loads, low reps for a long time, how to get back into it without getting injured again because the body will adapt. That's the beautiful thing about the body is it adapts very, very nicely if you're kind to it. If you try to make it move quickly and then adapt to a schedule that's not natural, it will rebel and you'll have an injury of some sort. So it's not the injury that's the problem, it's the greed that's the problem. That's what the athlete needs to avoid. Yeah. So I can tell you my own experience, uh, uh, just to share with you, last year I, I got I trained up to do another triathlon, which um, you know I, I thought was pretty much off my radar for you know for my life. Um, but yeah. I sucked it up, and I, I, you know what, what led me to it was I started to find my fitness on my bike where I was losing my fitness running. And I, I just found that as I get older, I get heavier, and uh, the, the the return to the road running was harsh for me. I just found that it just uh, the workouts were just uh, too debilitating to put together 
back-to-back uh, on a regular, regular sequence. But riding, I got away with a lot more, uh, obviously enough because it's less stressful to the joints, especially, you know, being on the bike properly. But um, I went through a stage where uh, getting out of the saddle and climbing, my knees hurt. And, huh? and then what was interesting about that was you, you, got, you got two decisions you could make. You could decide that your, your knees can't take it or you just try to find a way to get past it. And what I found was pretty quickly my strength started coming together and I became more and more proficient and my knees bothered me less. And the more intensity I was able to take on, the less my knees were bothering me. And I actually got back to running better because of the strength component that I developed on the bike. Because I also found that I can push my heart a lot harder on the bike than I could running. So what I started noticing is that my my runs turned out to be really low intensity, low aerobic workouts, uh, where my running or my cycling capacity was where I really I could go hard. But they started to complement one another. So if I, you know I don't I don't want to get off on a tangent on this, but just my own experience was that uh, you know I think a lot of guys what happens is they start getting crickety, like you you're suggesting the rust. They start to rust a little bit, and their assumption is that it's over, and they and then they tend to want to back away rather than to charge ahead. And I mean obviously enough you need to be you know uh, cautious, but uh, I think that there there's definitely something to be said for being tenacious and trying to get get through to the other side, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Um, certainly uh, what you've experienced is, is, is common for a lot of athletes. In fact, one thing to suggest in the book is if runners who really have more difficulty probably with injury than most other endurance sports, if they can't seem to get, get it together at all with doing high-intensity training uh, because of like knee injuries, like you mentioned, but sometimes going to the bike is beneficial even for the uh, for the running fitness, in fact, some research that seems to support that that doing uh, intervals on the bike transfers to uh, running fitness also. So there may be a reason to to do exactly what you said you did. Well, I could tell you that um, it it helped me a lot, and uh, I, I noticed that my my ability to run improved. And uh, you know, my day job is working with people to improve their running mechanics. And I, I think that's a principal component of of uh, the ability to sustain uh, greater intensities running is just getting in the right place and not not butchering yourself as you're trying to go down the road. So uh, yeah. absolutely, all this kind of goes hand in hand. But I also uh, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, the comment you made and, and the terms you use in your book in respect to dose um, and uh, and density. I think that's that's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting look because uh, obviously the greater the dose the less density you're going to need or want right and and yeah, opposite right. being too true as well so um, right. uh, I know uh, I don't know what the, the script is for most people but generally if I do something pretty intense I need about two days on average mm-hmm. to 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 come back I I can't. I can't throw big workouts back to back anymore, uh, you know, day after day. I, I need some time. Now I could do some low intensity stuff every day, but if I put a big workout together, uh, there's there's some repayment that's necessary. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's one of the things I suggest in the book is that um, one one of the problems that we 
we have as we get older is we don't recover as quickly as we did when we were young. So anything that's um, um, high dose uh, requires more time to recover from than it did 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so one of the things I suggest in the book is that the athlete, instead of training on a seven-day schedule, uh, train on a nine-day schedule if that's possible. One of the problems is if you have a job and you have to do a long run on a Tuesday morning because it's a nine-day schedule, you may not be able to get it done. So it doesn't work for everybody, but some people have a flexible lifestyle or they're retired, and because of that, they can go to a nine-day week, if you want to call it a week, and then what they do is they have two days of recovery after every high-dose workout. So if you do one of these high-intensity interval workouts that I'm describing on, on Monday, you would have Tuesday and Wednesday to recover, and then on Thursday, you go back to another high-intensity type of workout. So that... So I built it into the schedule by going to a different way of looking at what a week is. So, so just to be clear, uh, when you when you talk about a nine day schedule, I'm assuming that it's cyclical. So uh, you're 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 yeah. tapping in a couple days worth of recovery, and then you you go back into the session and repeat it. Maybe some variable changes, but for the most part, it's a it's a it's a sequence of nine uh, days where uh, there's a measured amount of work and a measured amount of recovery over those time frames, right? That's right, yeah. The idea is that is that we're going to spread the workouts out, so we're going to decrease the density from what you might be doing in within a seven-day week. Seven-day week doesn't work very well for most athletes when you've got to have two days of recovery because that means you only get every two days or every week, you only get two hard, two quality workouts in. Whereas, so over the course of two weeks, you only get four. Whereas if you change it to a nine-day schedule, now every third day we get a harder workout in, so we manage to fit in another workout every two weeks than we would with a seven-day schedule. So it just becomes cyclical, as you mentioned. So we train nine days, and then we start the next nine-day cycle. At the end of that nine-day cycle, which is now 18 days, we take a couple of days to recover, you know, more days to recover. It's so like three days to recover now instead of only two, or perhaps even five days for some athletes who need even more time. So it take a longer time to recover just to get that uh, periodic, longer break from hard training before we start into the next cycle. And we simply refer to these as, as mesocycles. And right. if anybody's ever read any of my Bibles that you've mentioned a while ago, they'll find discussions in there of how to set up mesocycles, which are several weeks long periods of training. Right. So you essentially it's a periodized approach to work where you're 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 making sure that the recovery is a is an uh, integral component of the process, right? Exactly. And right. Assu- assuming that, you know, as the volume and the intensity starts to build, that more recovery is going to be required as you get deeper into the work. Yeah, certainly. So that's that's the reason we get we take two days after every high dose workout. And so we spread out we decrease the density and then at the end of about Roughly about three weeks, uh, rough around that time, 18 to 20 days. Now we take an extended period of recovery, another two to even five days, depending on the athlete what they need, so we can take a, a longer break from training, so we recover even more fully, and we start in the next cycle of 18 days. Right. You know, it's it's interesting that we're having this conversation uh, today because I'm meeting with an athlete tomorrow, who is a Spartan racer. He's an elite pro, and. Um, He's got a big schedule over the next uh, uh, seven or eight months. Um, 
where he's involved in uh, some television program that they're doing, and he's got some adventure racing he has to do. He's got some mountain bike challenges. He's got a couple of uh, ultra uh, ultra runs he has to do, and and just a whole parcel of uh, challenges he's going to face every month in different parts of the world. And we're going to try to uh, help him periodize this work in such a way that um, you know he's going to be in the right place at the right time physically with each of these different events. Uh, and it's kind of challenging because they're they're doing it for television. They're not doing it for sport. <laughs> they're not trying to see if they can achieve a, a, a competitive peak. They're they're just throwing stuff at them that they might think is entertaining for people to watch on television, right? So sure, he, yeah. he's, he's basically the, the raggedy Ann, uh, Andy that's going to get smacked around, and hopefully he'll survive. And if he doesn't, it makes for better TV. So we're, we're trying to figure out what the you know what samplings of work he should do. And, and uh, now, even though he's much younger than fifty, uh, I think this approach that you have. Uh, with this nine-day tr- training week is, is interesting because what he doesn't get a lot of is recovery. He tends to not want to yeah. recover, which is probably common sure. with a lot of young guys, right? They don't they don't take the recovery time. It's common with a lot of athletes, actually. Uh, they try to pack way too much high intensity, and the density becomes too great. And because of that, they somehow they break down. Eventually, it's injury or it's uh, just significant fatigue. The early stages is of overtraining or illness, something interferes with continuation of that of, of that way of training. So another thing that I found pretty fascinating in your book, and it was very timely, is that you 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 spend a lot of energy on uh, nutrition, mm-hmm. and um, you drew some parallels, which is interesting because this is the kind of stuff that hasn't been talked about a lot, but is being talked about a lot now which uh, is the, the decision to be uh, a, a carbohydrate uh, running engine or a fat-adapted running engine. And we actually discussed this uh, on a show a couple weeks back uh, because I work with a lot of these guys that are doing these Spartan races, and, and they tend to do some pretty crazy challenges. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they go long. And a lot of a matter of fact, there's a lot of guys from the ultra-marathon community that are very involved in this high-fat, low-carb diets. And uh, so I like how you did kind of a comparative. You just kind of said, well, if you're going to be this guy, this is kind of how you would traditionally feed. And if you're going to be this guy, this is how you should be feeding and how that kind of works. So I want to ask you, uh, because you didn't point in either direction. You didn't say, this is what I think you should do or that's what I think you should do. You just kind of shed some light on both of those scenarios. So my question to you is, Let's say that I'm a 25-year-old athlete, and I come to you, and you know, there's not been much rhyme or reason to my nutrition other than I'm trying to stay wholesome. I'm trying to you know, uh, have a holistic lifestyle. I don't eat a lot of junk food. Um, but I eat when I'm hungry, and I, you know, I just obviously an eating machine because I'm exercising all the time. To encourage increases in performance, would you lend someone towards a high-fat diet uh, not necessarily. It depends on the athlete. Um, I think it works best with someone who is uh, what's called carbohydrate resistant or insulin resistant. Typically, what that person has experienced is they they gain weight, especially body fat, very easily, and they have a hard time getting rid of it. You know, they may cut calories and they still can't shed the 
the uh, excess weight. And so that sort of person probably needs to really strongly consider going to a, a low-carb diet, high-fat, um, instead of what they've been doing, which has probably been high-carbohydrate, which is pretty much the standard across the board for athletes. Uh, but if the athlete is doing well, turning well, uh, no illness, um, recovering well from hard workouts and so forth, everything is good, then I would see no reason to change the diet. So, But what the athlete needs to keep in mind is what is your situation, your condition in those regards at age 25 is not necessarily going to be the same thing that it is at age 35, 45, 55, and so forth. So you know, the person needs to keep an open mind that there are possibilities of things changing uh, as we get older. We tend to think it's not that somehow I'm going to remain skinny all my life and perform at this high level. But you start getting older and you realize, gosh, something's different here. I'm putting on belly fat and, and uh, slowing down. All this stuff is happening. So that person's just arrived at the point where they need to reconsider their nutrition. It's, it just seems like such a contradiction to to uh, lean towards a higher fat diet when your tendency is to gain weight. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Is you're saying that you know maybe you're uh, insulin sensitive and, and you 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 have some issues that are uh, not allowing you to metabolize well. But um, just the density in calories relative to someone that I mean, you you could. Essentially, I mean, obviously, now fat fat is is not as dense of uh, a food substance as um, carbohydrate. You know, you if you for example, if you if you were to be a vegan and you want to eat five thousand calories of carbohydrate, you got a lot of eating to do, right? As opposed sure. as opposed to eating high fat. So um, I don't know. I just it's just really something that seems to be uh, high on everybody's list to think about right now and. What I liked about what you said in here uh, was that you really can't trip back and forth between these these two processes. You either gonna you either got to go one way or you got to go the other, and then you got to stick it out, right? Yeah, stick it out until you discover somehow it's not working. That, that's that's the other alternative is is uh, uh, it may not work for you. For some some person may try going to a low carb, high fat diet and stick with it for uh, several weeks, maybe even months, and discover they're really still gaining weight, and uh, uh, they can't get rid of the excess weight, they're not performing well, they're not recovering well, whatever the situation may be. And so that is not, something's wrong, perhaps, with their diet. There's, there's so many things that are going on, it's hard to really draw conclusions. That's just one of the possibilities it could be have could do with health conditions the athlete has also. So there's, there are lots of issues here. The thing you brought up about calories and fat, as you, most everybody knows, there's more calories, more than twice as many calories in a gram of fat as in a gram of carbohydrate, nine versus four. However, the issue is that fat is much more satisfying. When you eat fat, it decreases your appetite very quickly. So you're not hungry as often, and therefore you eat less. Whereas eating carbohydrate, especially high glycemic carbohydrate, starches and sugars, uh, those things tend to stimulate uh, appetite. And so you've eaten them, and a short period later you're hungry again because it's, it, it is, uh, st- it's processed so quickly in your digestive tract that you feel the need to eat again, even though it's only been an hour since you ate the last time. And so that's one of the major differences. So over the course of the day, you wind up eating fewer calories, even though there's more calories per gram in fat than if you ate carbohydrate. 
So it's it's a, it's much more complex than just looking how many calories are in a gram of fat versus a gram of carbohydrate. Right. So, but then the other end of it is this, and this is kind of where I get lost: is that um, suggesting that it's a good idea, it's actually recommended to take on um, high intensity exercise because um, you know I don't want to give give away the the goat here, but um, you know the idea being that. Um, if you did high intensity work more often, you know, obviously enough, high intensity work is going to tap into your sugar stores, and you start, you know, lending in that direction. Uh, I don't know that I, I'm ready to buy the the notion that you become fat adapted, and that, you know, at 85 percent of your max heart rate, or you know, or, or above your your threshold, your body's still going to be burning fat as an energy source. Yeah, that, that's the one thing we don't have research on yet. There, there's very, very limited research on how does a high-fat, low-carb diet affect anaerobic uh, exercise performance when anaerobic. And uh, we really don't have that information yet. We know that it works extremely well for very, very long, low-intensity aerobic-type exercise, such as ultramarathons. Um, those folks perform extremely well on a high-fat high diet uh, as opposed to a a high-carb diet, but there's really no research on the other side of it yet to tell us what goes on when one is anaerobic. For example, in a bike race, uh, like a road race, like a Tour de France type event. So many of those events are determined by what happens on very, very short uh, episodes that maybe only last two or three minutes, like on a climb or in a breakaway or in the wind or something like that. And uh, consequently, we don't know what that means. Road cyclists tend not to do high fat. I don't know of any at the pro level of going eating high fat, uh, and we don't have research on it to really tell us what that means either. So we're kind of left in limbo when it comes to that side of the equation, that ty- that type of exercise. Well, uh, in, in, going back to the fellow that I'm working with, uh, one of the things that uh, has been a challenge, and this the reason we met, is that he he's a great athlete in the short, high intensity Spartan racing. He's an, he's an obstacle racer. And you know he he beats everybody's butt when it comes to anything uh, under about eight miles worth of obstacle racing. But the world championships in that event is 13 miles, and he's 190 pounds, and and, and he's probably you know uh, if I had a guess I'd say he's probably close to five percent body fat. He's he's really lean, and he's he's a very strong athlete. However, uh, when he's pushing, and by the way, 190 pounder he he runs he can run a 430 mile. Uh, right. But uh, the point being is that the intensity being what it is, um, it catches up with him about uh, 10 miles deep, uh, and, 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 he, and he fades. So the conundrum, you know, and he, people have been pushing him towards this high-fat thing, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's a situation at all. I, I think for a guy like that, uh, with the intensity that he's throwing down, I don't think it's going to work. I think it's, he probably needs to uh, just find a, a better feeding strategy. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's hard to say. There's so many, again, so many variables that go into this. And just talking about what the athlete eats on a regular basis is, you know, his chronic diet can't always answer the question of what should the athlete do as far as making changes to that diet, and therefore we're going to correct whatever the problem may be in the race. That's not always the case. Sometimes it may get worse. Um, but it certainly requires that the athlete and you, the coach, scratch your head a lot and come up with a plan of action to 
try to resolve this issue. And there's lots of ways to go. It could be that you've got the wrong type of carbohydrate that's being taken in uh, during exercise uh, or, or something else. I don't, I don't know what's going on with this athlete. So there could be a lot of variables. Right. Okay, so uh, a couple things about your book that I, I, I found really fascinating. Uh, one of them being the research that was conducted where they compared these Ironman athletes uh, or triathletes in common at the elite level where uh, guys that got older and, and uh, you know, the whole thing. So you're finding that that the, the guys that tend to race the shorter distances are are are, are fitter than the guys that tend to do the long stuff. Is, isn't that pretty much what you were saying there? That Yeah. So, so yeah, in, in essence, it gets back to the intensity, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, there was one that you're talking about one study that came out that looked at a comparison of, of um, age group athletes uh, in various categories compared with the overall winning time as far as, like, their splits for the race. And what they found was that um, for the shorter distance athletes, like Olympic distance triathletes, um, they came, they finished at a greater at a at a higher percentage of the winners' performance than did the Ironman distance racers. As they got older, they seemed to to um, slow down compared to the winner of the race much more dramatically than uh, the Olympic distance runners did or athletes did. So it seems to imply, we don't know exactly, it seems to imply that by training for short distance events, you obviously are doing more high intensity training and therefore you slow down less because it brings us right back to the discussion again of one thing that causes the decline in performance of age is a loss of VO2 max. And we know that doing high intensity training, like doing short races, improves that. Whereas doing long slow distances, like when you train for an Ironman, tends to compound the problem. So um, that seems to give support to, to the concept again. Well, and then uh, if you were to, you know, if you were to stand in front of a, a group of people that were uh, 50 years old plus, and you were to say, okay, you know, we know you like to to get out there and, and uh, participate in these events. Um, would you, would you, would you, based on what you're saying right now, suggest to them that for longevity's sake to maintain their their vigor? that it would be better to do uh, the shorter distance events, like Olympic uh, distance of events, um, more often as opposed to gearing up and training for long-type events like Ironman? Well, if the people were, if we're talking about it, I don't know who they are, but if they were novices, certainly there'd be no question about that. If they were experienced triathletes, and I'm trying to make suggestions on what they should do going forward, um, a lot of Ironman distance athletes don't want to give up Ironman. They they enjoy it with good reasons. It's it is challenging, and, and there's a lot to be said for uh, for trying to qualify. For example, for Conan, that's a it's a major accomplishment at any age. So I might what I would intend to uh, say to these people then is what we need to make sure we're doing is high intensity training throughout the year, uh, regardless of the distance you're training for. So you need to include some high intensity training, even if you're training for Ironman distance races. And it needs to be done year-round. It can't just be done on a seasonal basis where you do it like in the winter only and then you forget about the rest of the year. Uh. It needs to be done year-round to maintain VO2 max. The question becomes, how do we fit that into a training schedule for an Ironman, for example, given the fact that that athlete has to do all this other training, long workouts, steady-state workouts, hill work, swim, bike, and run? And um, 
how do we fit that in? So it becomes, it becomes a problem of periodization more than anything else. Right. Now, uh, could and I'm assuming that it doesn't really make that much difference what the modality is in order to uh, to get that high intensity dose. Uh, so, for example, if you were to get on like a Concept Two rower and just hammer it out and do some intervals on that thing, you're, you're looking at these cardiovascular benefits that are really going to make a big difference in in your heart strength and you know your ejection fraction and all the things that are going to pump that VO2 up, right? Right. Yeah, one of the biggest components of VO2 max is basically stroke volume, how much how much blood your heart pumps per beat. And the greater that is, uh, typically the higher the VO2 max is. But there are other components that fit into it also. There are things that happen at the muscular level, uh, like aerobic enzymes, that uh, help produce the energy to, to drive you at, when you're at this high intensity. And uh, that sort of thing has to be specific to the sport. So when you're working on certain components like the cardiac component, uh, you can use you can basically use any sport you want. It drives the heart to a high level, heart rate to a high level. Um, but when you're working on the stuff that has to do with like with aerobic enzymes or stuff that takes place peripherally or at the muscle site, um, then we need to do activities that are specific to the sport. Right. And I, I like too that uh you you draw a lot of attention to the importance of aerobic threshold, not anaerobic threshold, because, and, and I've been around this a long time myself, and I know that people tend to get a little confused, uh, the water seems to get a little muddy when it, when people start thinking in terms of tra- training in and around their anaerobic threshold, where I, I think that you get to this place where you're not really arriving at the benefits that you're hoping for when you're, you're scheduling what you consider to be an aerobic treatment. So I like how you're 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 doing a lot of um, um, time trials, essentially getting getting to a place where you come to grips with what your perform. What, I think uh, you called it the efficiency factor, uh, which I like. Right. Uh, where you you do comparative analysis over time to see whether things are improving, and that kind of lends you in the direction you need to go in respect to what to do next, right? Yeah, the testing purpose of testing is to find out. For example, what's your VO2 max output is? Output meaning how fast you can, how fast you're, you can run when a VO2 max or what your power is when you're at VO2 max on a bike, for example. But we're trying, we need to find that occasionally to see how that's doing. That gives us feedback on the answer to the question, what is happening to my VO2 max as I get older? Well, we need to be the baseline. We can do that in a field test. It doesn't cost anything uh, to do it. Uh, or you can go to a lab and they can test it for you and tell you the, a number which basically tells you the same sort of thing, just from a different perspective. Um, so we can do that periodically, and that will cost you roughly $200 uh, a whack to get that done. So we can do it either way, uh, lactate threshold, or which is also called anaerobic threshold. And there's a number of other names that are kind of like they sort of the same point in the intensity scale. And... Uh, um, that can be found out in the lab also, but we can, again, we can do the field test. We can just do a, a longer exercise bout, and the book describes these field tests, so we can wind up knowing what your anaerobic threshold is and what your VO2 max output is, power and pace, and from that you can see what's happening over the course of time. Yeah, and so, again, uh, what, I, what I like about what you do and, and what is well uh, described in your book is the importance of these metrics and the, the, having the comparative analysis. So 
it, a lot of people still to this day, which it, it slays me, but they're they're shy. They shy away from monitoring their heart rate. And, you know, people kind of tell me, oh, you're the heart rate kind of guy. And I'm, I'm not really a heart rate guy. I, I just need, I need all, all the bits and pieces of the information I could possibly gather to make decisions moving forward. And, and as, you, as you very nicely have said many times is that heart rate represents input. And, you know, in the case of a bike, power might represent output or yield, your running pace. Um, and but to 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 build a uh, a training program around just outcome is 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 not nearly as effective as knowing what is costing you to do what you're doing, right? Exactly right. You know, if we if if you own a business and it's a manufacturing business, um, you're certainly interested in knowing. Um, you want to know both things. You want to know what does it cost me to produce my widgets? Uh, how many widgets can I produce? Those are two separate issues. But they're both very, very valuable pieces of information. It's, it's the same thing with an athlete training for a competition. The athlete wants to know what does it take to produce a high output. What's the cost of that high output? And the cost is in terms of energy. You've, you've got a limited amount of energy. How much energy does it take? And so by doing some testing, we can find out the answer to those questions and figure out if we're making progress or not. That's the efficiency factor. Right. And, and the field tests, um, uh, I think are, are 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 critical along the way. I know that when I work with people, I tend to, for example, just you know making it simple. If we we're training for a marathon, you know we start out with uh, a, a, an aerobic time trial, just to see what the yield is relative to the cost, and then we work from there. And the the, the time trials get longer; they could be more intense, but that you know every every time you have this comparative, you, you get you learn something. And I, right. I, I used to tell people, so you know, if you get to time to race and you start talking to me about hope and you wish, then I feel like I failed you. <laughs> if you're hoping, right. you should know, right? I mean, yeah. your, your training should have right. taught you what's going to happen going, going forward, right? Yeah, you should know pretty much on a regular basis what kind of progress you're making. Uh, whether it's, at the very least, if it's positive progress or negative progress. But if you really get good at, at uh, uh, testing, for example, you really have it nailed down to numbers. You can talk about, well, my pace for running now is is this than it used to be. Six weeks ago, it was something slower, or my power is greater than it was six weeks ago, or whatever. So we, if you have things like that, numbers you can hang your hat on, then training becomes much more definitive. And so when you wind up going to an event, a race, you have a pretty good idea of what you should be able to achieve. It's not like it's some, something that's a mystery. It's We already know where you are because of all the testing we've done. Well, but also the, the just the information in respect to feeding strategies. I mean, you, you start to know that uh, you used to ha- uh, have to have this much energy t- uh, put back in order to keep moving, and that cost starts to become less expensive over time, I would think, if if you if you get more uh, aerobic at these greater intensities, the 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 cost factor is going to go down, right? Yeah, exactly. That that's one of the things. Again, you could find out in the laboratory. Spend a couple hundred dollars to find out the answer to that question. Every time you want to find out, you know, am, am I am I creating more output or more yield, as you called it, mm-hmm. or the cost of doing this? And and they do that test in the labs all the time. And they can tell you exactly what the cost was to produce a given output. Or you can do a field test, and you can find out the same thing. It doesn't cost you anything. 
Well, uh, I, and you can do those. Yeah, Go I, ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I I test people uh, uh, here uh, and yeah. have forever. But the first thing I have them do after I've tested them is I have them do a field test. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you want to be able to see what that performance relates to those numbers. And then, exactly. and, and then you know, maybe maybe you don't need to be back in the lab for a long time because if you're staying on top of it, then you, you through this comparative analysis that you're conducting in the field, you're starting to learn. You're starting to learn what you can get away with, and you, you'll know. I mean, you, you won't know precisely, uh, but you'll have a very strong understanding of what you're capable of getting away with or not. Yeah, and the interesting thing is you'll discover that the body goes through, it's kind of like a, a ratchet. It doesn't go, it's not a straight line with performance improvement. It goes up for a while, then it goes down for a while, then it goes up for a while, then it goes down for a while. And this happens on an alternating basis. It may be, uh, you know, I, for example, I do that workout, this efficiency factor workout for myself. I do it a couple times a week. Wow. And, uh I can see the changes on a, every time I do it is slightly different than before. It's a little bit higher or it's a little bit lower. But the general trend is that it's getting higher all the time. So uh, you begin to see, begin to learn much more, many more things about your body by, by doing regular field tests. And certainly going to laboratories, one way to clinic is one way to find out the answer to those questions also. But it can't be done as regularly or frequently rather something because of cost and, and the difficulty of setting the testing up and so forth. So w- give me a, a prognosis of someone that, you know, is, uh, I, ha- I, I call it the come to Jesus meeting, you know, where you, you have this life episode where you, you realize that, you know, uh, you need to do something. I mean, I mean, doctors are handing out this information all the time, but, you know, you get to this, this, uh, this point in your life where you realize that, you know, I, I'm in, I'm going to be in trouble if I don't if I don't start you know getting my butt out and doing something, and um, so I, I decide I want to start doing some racing. Kind of spill out. Let's 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 try to create a scenario. Let's say I'm a 55 year old guy. I, I've gained too much weight. My doctor says you know I'm I, I'm I'm at risk for diabetes if I don't do something, and so I need to get I need to get my butt out there. How would we kind of work our way into some um, some intensities and try to gain our fitness back? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's only three things that, that an athlete can change in a workout, um, no matter what level the athlete is at, whether they're an Olympian, professional, endurance athlete, or they're just getting started. It's the same three things, and those things are frequency, how often you work out, Second is duration or how long the workouts are. And third is intensity or how hard the workouts are, how how fast you're moving, for example, running or whatever it may be. For the novice athlete, the most important of those three is frequency. The most important thing is they've got, simply got to get out the door. They need to get outside and exercise in some way um, frequently. If they keep missing workouts, they only get in one workout a week, one week, and two the next, and zero the next, they're just not going to make any progress regardless of what they do with duration or regardless of what they do with intensity. So the most important thing for the novice is get out the door. Find the exercise that you enjoy doing and go do it. Um, it doesn't matter about duration. It doesn't matter about intensity. In fact, those will both be low. And don't, so don't worry about it. Duration is going to be short. Frequency or intensity is going to be low. Just get out the door and exercise. 
for the intermediate athlete, let's say that means beyond one year. The athlete is now in, in the second or third year of their exercise program. Now duration becomes more important. So now we start thinking about, okay, well, can we go for a 45-minute run now? We used to do 20- and 30-minute runs. Now can I do a 45-minute run on a regular basis? Maybe I'll even build up to an hour here in a few more months. As we get to the advanced, the, yeah, the advanced athlete, the athlete's been around the sport for more than three years, now intensity becomes the key issue to their performance. Unfortunately, that athlete still thinks it's duration. They, people simply refuse to give up on duration as being the most important element. They think they've got to do these long, slow-distance workouts to improve. And the key when you get to that level, to beyond three years, for example, of, of frequent workouts with good duration, is now the issue becomes intensity. Are you training at a hard enough effort to stimulate the body to change? And so it depends on who we're talking about again when it comes down to what's the most important thing to do in training. Okay, so, but um, I, I'm assuming that there is a place where, you know, I, what I fear is this. I, I fear a guy would, would take take the idea that, uh, okay, I'm going to get out, I'm going to do something. and But I'm going to take it easy because I haven't done anything for a while, which is prudent. But isn't there a time uh, early enough on where we kind of inject some fashion of intense? Because intensity is relative, right? I mean, uh, what's intense for me versus someone else is a completely different spiel, right? So I'm just thinking, yeah. shouldn't he have in the back of his mind that he's got to push the envelope a little bit here and there? And uh, and I think it's, I would think it's safe. I still think it's safe to to push, even though they're deconditioned. Because I would think that you know, you know, this is going to kind of get deep, but uh, you, you're going to know where I'm going with this. Is that this whole thing with Noakes put out this central governor theory? Is that your your brain's going to keep you from killing yourself? You're you're not going to you're not likely to do something that's going to uh, cause you to have an episode um, where a lot of people think that if they start pushing on themselves that that you know that that's dangerous what's your thoughts on that yeah I agree there's, there's nobody's gonna die from doing this um, what they do it's extremely rare um, yeah I, I used to work with uh, some novice athletes who just getting started in the sport and I would have them do intervals uh, but they weren't high intensity like I might have somebody who's been around the sport for five or six years do. They were simply, let's take running. I'd have the athlete go out and do a 20-minute run, and after about seven or eight minutes, they would uh, just pick up the pace a little bit and run for a minute or so, a little bit faster than the warm-up, and then they would slow down and come to start walking. And maybe they'd walk for a minute, and then they'd go back to running at a little bit higher intensity again, but not 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 going anaerobic, just running a little bit higher than what they normally do during the warm-up and cool-down. So they'd alternate this one-minute higher intensity, one-minute lower intensity. But the idea that I don't really care what their heart rate is, I don't care what their pace was, I don't care what their power was. All I want to know is that they're, they're first of all, they're frequently getting out the door and exercising, and we're doing various types of things to stimulate their body, one of those things being intervals. So intervals can be done at any level, it's just an issue of how, what type of intervals do you do, and and how intense are they? Right. Well, I, I know I, I have people that uh, actually I, I have a client that uh, a female that I work with, and she's uh, seventy herself, and uh, she's uh, under my charge. She's run a few marathons, uh, ran one last year, big sir, and uh, I have her doing some pretty crazy stuff, and she's gotten to a mm-hmm. place where. 
she's gotten away with it. You know, she she actually uh, is seems to be impervious to soreness. She doesn't get sore anymore, and right. I I think that's genetic, to be honest with you. Uh, but yeah. her, her brother, uh, who I've also uh, worked with a little bit, is completely different than she is, and and I think he may be even a year or two older than she is. But uh, he he's really really comfortable walking. He doesn't want you know. I try to get him to jog a little bit, and I've done a VO2 on him, you know, just to find out what his threshold was. I wanted to see how safe it was to take him out and push on him a little bit. And and uh, I I would run with him and and try to get his heart rate up. And I I had a plateau where I I felt comfortable that anything beyond that was probably too much. And I I would monitor his recovery before we we we'd start off onto another set in the intervals. Uh, and in, you know he he was doing pretty well with it, and I was monitoring his progress to see whether he was improving over time. But you know his notion of this this visiting intensity, he just felt it wasn't for him. And I'm trying to convince him that in fact that's exactly what he should be doing. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on something like that. Do you think a guy that gets to that place where he's not been exercising that he should try to encourage some improvements in the intensity? Um, it depends on how well the athlete is coming along. If, again, the first thing, my greatest concern is frequency. Are they, if I'm trying to get them to exercise three times a week, are they doing that? Are, we getting out, are they getting out to train three times a week? If they're doing that, and that's proving to be successful, now we might start talking about intensity. You know, well, let's, let's do a little bit faster or let's do a little bit longer in a duration sort of effort. Um, so we can start playing with things, but if you haven't got the frequency thing going, there's not much reason to be talking about intensity with them. Uh, doing, you know, missing two workouts a week and then doing one hard workout is just not going to get the job done. The key for that person is frequency. Get out the door frequently. Okay, that's a good message. Well, I tell you, Joe, I, I loved your book. Um, I think uh, I think it's a good read for anyone that is already uh, involved in sport and is interested in finding out uh, a little bit more about how they tick and, and what they should be doing or not doing. And, and your programming is awesome. You know, it, it lends them to uh, a very safe and, and effective competitive place for people that over, you know, and the, the, again, the title of the book is not tr- exercising over 50, but uh, being fast after 50. So you're, right. you're looking for greater things, not just maintaining Right, exactly right. So I think that's very encouraging. It's just just the idea of even seeing something like that as the header of a book is is good stuff. You know, fast fast after fifty by Joe Frail. Uh, I highly recommend the book to anyone that is uh, competing in triathlon, cycling, racing in any fashion, and uh, is interested in great greater things. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.